as we look to bring some positives into a pretty dark and dispiriting world. By anchoring ourselves in the Bible, learning truth and absorbing it in our hearts and minds, we will, as Psalm 36 declares, discover the fountain of life and see his light. And in John chapter 8, Jesus declares that whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of the world. And following him is what we're about today, and of course, in all of our services here at St. Paul's. Now, while Simon was talking about hope here last week, I was over at St. Barbara's speaking on God as our rock. And unknowingly, there were many similarities between what we were both saying. Indeed, we used some of the same references. Simon spoke of God as stability, a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, and of hope being a rock-solid confidence about the future. And in my talk at St. Barbara's, I said that unlike relying on the crumbling rocks of politics or money, or things like sport, particularly when England get thrashed by Scotland at rugby. Accepting Christ means that we can build our life on his foundation, a foundation which will hold firm as we fight the battles of life. Hold firm against the wind and the rain and the rising waters, not collapse on the shifting sands of a world whose foundations crumble when trouble comes, as inevitably it does for all of us. And from that firm foundation comes from what I want to talk about today, this issue of joy. One of the fruits of the spirit that Paul talks about in his letter to the young church in Galatia. What are the other fruits of the spirit? Well done. I think, I think the most, of them, most of them were there. Self-control, gentleness, faithfulness. Joy is a word that runs through the Bible like a golden thread. From Genesis to just about every book in the Old Testament and every gospel and every letter in the New. We are constantly encouraged, if not commanded, to experience the same feeling of joy that David experienced as he leapt and danced before the Lord when the Ark of the Covenant was entering Jerusalem. Do you remember that story from 2 Samuel? So let me start by asking you this. What brings or has brought you most joy in your life? Have a chat with your neighbor or think about it if you're sitting isolated. <laughs> what brings you or has brought you most joy in your life? Cuddling a friend looks like one of the joys in life. <laughs> Great. Now, because most of us can't read Greek or Hebrew or Latin, let alone Aramaic, which is what Jesus talked in, anybody speak any of those languages? No. Oh, one of the back. Oh, yeah, well, you would, of course. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Robert, you would. Oh, well done. Oh, well done. Brilliant. Well, maybe you should come up here and do the rest of the sermon. <laughs> but understanding the context and the true meaning of words like joy, 
I don't think is easy, and it's been quite interesting preparing for this sermon. Nor is it easy to see the difference between joy and words like happiness or contentment. But words matter, I think, and if we understand what the original writers were getting at, we need to try to understand them. So, for example, I don't know whether you know this, but I discovered this in my research. The third Sunday of Advent, which I know is a bit a while ago, is known as Gaudet Sunday, which comes from the Latin word for rejoice. And the candle that day, which is called the shepherd candle, or the candle of joy, is pink. Not quite the same as my trousers, but getting on for the, for the same colour. That colour apparently represents joy or triumph on the birth of Jesus. So what differentiates joy from happiness? Every year, Christine and I go up to Scotland and stay in a village of Ballater, which sits alongside the River Dee. It's fast-flowing, and the undercurrent is strong and steady. But the surface, like any river, is a mass of eddies and small waves as it breaks around the rocks and bashes into the banks of the river. And I was chatting to Bob Kitely after the West Ash Wednesday service, and Bob suggested that happiness is rather like those surface ripples on the river. It moves up and down depending upon the wind and the weather, sometimes calm, other times not. But joy is deeper than that. It's like the constant flow of the river, of the undercurrent, sweeping its way downstream. And last week at St. Barbara's, Claire Isherwood, I often challenge people when I'm trying to learn what to preach and ask people's views and so on, Claire said that rather like the water in a waterfall, some drops and droplets are at the edges, reflecting rainbows and, and looking beautiful, but hidden behind is the main flow of the water as it tumbles down to the river or the lake below. So maybe there's something here about how we can operate individually as droplets and on the, on, the, on the top of the river and so forth, or as part of a collective whole. Something about happiness being an individual emotion, whilst joy is deeper than that. And it's something we share with others. We experience it ourselves, of course, but in sharing with others, uh, we find joy. And I suspect that as you shared your stories about where you found joy, usually it was associated with events with others. Which is perhaps why Psalm 118 says, This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. In an earlier sermon, I mentioned Jonathan Sachs' latest book, Morality. As I said then, I think he's a brilliant thinker and a writer on today's social and cultural issues. And the central message in that book is that ours is an age in which there's too much I and too little we. Too many seeking individual happiness rather than collective joy. And the key unit in society today is certainly the individual. And for many, all that matters is choice. In this I and me world of choice, academics have actually identified a curious phenomenon called quiet quitting. Large numbers of people can't be bothered to work. Apparently, extraordinarily, 22% of 16 to 64-year-olds don't work at the moment. Or they prefer to work at home rather than in an office with other people. And in our consumerist marketplace, if you're not getting what you want from various partnerships, you can simply walk away. Find a better business partner with whom you can make more money, or a better tennis or bridge partner in order to be more successful. 
or find someone more attractive with whom life will be more exciting, at least for a little while, rather than call them a partner, rather than commit to a lifelong marriage with a husband or a wife. The result is that isolation and a lack of friends is a growing problem. Living alone in the Amazon and Deliveroo world, apparently the proportion of people who can name six close friends has dropped from 55% to 27% since the 1990s. Whilst those who say they have no close friends at all has written, risen from 3% to 12%. And the move from we to I and from us to me has certainly led to a raft of eye-focused stuff over the last couple of decades. Everything from iPhones and iPads and iPods and selfies to courses on individual well-being and work-life balance and something I read the other day, finding fulfilment in virtual relationships for £12.99 a month. <laughs> the latest Apple Vision Pro is a face computer which you wear as a headset. It takes you deep into the world of virtual reality, the metaverse, and spatial computing, where you can all spend all your time lost in a world of your own. And after watching people with tears in their eyes as they tried it out, Tim Cook, the boss of Apple, said, our mission is to enrich people's lives. And I could feel it happening in real time. What a day, he declared. Well, maybe. In the foreword to Jonathan's book, Justin Welby, who, by the way, we've got over 230 people signed up, and somebody at 9 o'clock this morning said, oh, I haven't signed up yet, I'd better get in there quickly. So if you haven't signed up for Justin coming to speak to Speaker's Corner, uh, do, do do that. Justin wrote the, the foreword to Jonathan, uh, Jonathan Sachs' book, and he says this, autonomy, apt, autonomy aptly describes the state we inhabit today. A world of relativism, self-absorption, individual rights, self-esteem. And the moral bonds that used to hold us together, family, faith, culture, custom, convention, no longer do so. Living or leaving increasing numbers vulnerable and alone. But maybe, maybe this isn't all new. In that book, Jonathan also provides a superb commentary on a man focused only on himself determined to have everything, yet seemingly nothing he owns brings him joy. And Ted is going to come and read to us from a book that I suspect not many of you have read recently, Ecclesiastes. Ted, come and do that for us. If you want to follow the uh, reading in the Bibles in the pews at the end of the aisles, um, it will be found on page 671, and it's from Ecclesiastes, chapter 2, and we're going to start reading at verse 4. I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself and planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made reservoirs to water groves of flourishing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had other slaves who were born in my house. I also owned more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem before me. I amassed silver and gold for myself 
and the treasure of the kings and provinces. I acquired male and female singers, and a harem as well, the delights of a man's heart. I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me. In all this, my wisdom stayed with me. I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my labour, and this was the reward for all my, uh, all my toil. Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Ted. <clears throat> I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself and planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks. I made reservoirs of water. I owned more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem. I amassed silver and gold, acquired men and women, the delights of my heart. I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless. Nothing was gained under the sun. Note the repeated use of just one little word. Actually, one little letter. The first person singular. I. Nowhere else in the Bible is I used so relentlessly. I made it for myself. I bought it for myself. And yet it all yields, all it yields is vanity and striving after wind. A chasing, as he says, after the wind. Now, as Jonathan Sachs says in his book, it's easy to read Ecclesiastes and conclude that its theme is disillusionment. <laughs> and I have to say, it does come across as being pretty depressing. But amongst it all, the author does find something that relieves his worldly weariness. For example, what redeems life and etches it with grace is joy in work. The sleep of a laborer, he says, is sweet. And chapter 3 says this, there's nothing better for man than to be joyful and to do good as long as he lives. He should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil when God gives him wealth and possessions and enables him to enjoy them, to accept his lot and to be happy in his work. This is God's gift. He also suggests that we should find joy in a marriage. See life with the woman you love and enjoy life with your wife and hopefully the other way around too. Echoing, actually, Deuteronomy chapter 24, which says, A husband must make his wife rejoice. How's Simon doing, Pam? Is he doing all right? <laughs> and tellingly, he writes that a cord of three strands is not quickly broken. When the human race was made in his image, God said, Let us make man in our image and our likeness. God is not an isolated individual. He, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit are totally united, and we are designed to have real relationships with both them and with real people. So what does all that mean for us? Well, it seems to me that a search for happiness involves searching for victory for the self, whilst joy goes deeper and well beyond that. It's a shared emotion. It's a phenomenon of we, not I. 
Life is far more uh, about far more than what we earn or buy or own. It's about how we relate to others, as all the evidence from numerous studies over many decades show. Close, enduring relationships matter more than money or fame, protecting us from life's discontents, happy, helping to delay mental and physical decline, and they are better predictors of a long and happy life than social class, IQ, or even genetics. As followers of Christ, we're effectively commanded to find joy together in the simplest pleasures of life. Take joy in each day, being grateful for what we have, not worrying about what we haven't, looking daily at the beauty around us, the resurrection in nature at this time of life, leading us to the resurrection at Easter. As June said in our life group earlier this week, or yes, earlier this week, watch the butterflies and the birds having fun. And as I came into church for nine o'clock this morning, listening to the birds singing earlier on. Sense peace, she said, when day is done, and look forward to a new day and a new dawn. And we commanded to find time for collective celebration. Biblical festivals are occasions of rejoicing, for as it says in Deuteronomy 16, you, your sons and your daughters, your male and female servants, if you happen to have some, and the fatherless and the strangers and the Levites in your towns and the widows living amongst you. And in chapter 26 it says that bringing of the first fruits to the temple must involve collective celebrations. You and the Levites and the strangers in your midst shall rejoice in all the good things that God has given to you and to your household. And in addition to numerous celebrations together, we're also commanded by God to take a day off every week. He knew that if we didn't rest, we would strive relentlessly to get more and more, build bigger barns, and end up exhausted physically, emotionally, psychologically, and spiritually with no space or time for him or for each other, and no joy in our lives. The Jewish Sabbath and our Sunday is God's way of establishing a work-life balance, a day of gratitude, an oasis of rest, a pause in the endless pursuit of more, an antidote to the marketplace and the turmoil of political and economic life. It is to be dedicated to the things that don't have a price but have real value. For Jews it remains, uh, the Sabbath remains a day when they can't sell or buy, can't work or pay others to work. Given a free hand I think the chances of the Exchequer would rather create an eighth day in the week so that we could all get out there and work and earn more and spend more. Whilst they can't do that, thankfully, Nonetheless, since the Sunday Trading Act in 1994, large shops have been allowed to open for up to six hours on Sundays between 10 and 6 p.m., 10 a.m. and 6 p.m. But we can't make the joy of the Lord our strength if we're also worshipping the world around us, whether that be work or shopping or anything else. So whilst we may pop into the Cathedral of Tesco occasionally on a Sunday, Sunday must nonetheless remain a day to celebrate relationships, to bless families and friends by taking time to share a meal together and express gratitude for God's gifts. And above all, of course, to celebrate our greatest gift, 
The Lord has given us many gifts in this present world, but we are nonetheless warned not to set our hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy, says Paul in his letter to Timothy. It's God himself whose love is poured out to us through Christ, who is our highest joy. So we thank God for our salvation. Rejoice that he sent Christ into the world to die on the cross for us and for our sins, for rising again and giving us hope for salvation, the hope of an eternity with him. Again, in our Bible study group last Monday, I mentioned that I'd just taken a funeral, to which Bob Kitely said, a believer believes in endless hope, whilst an unbeliever believes in a hopeless end. Which I thought was quite good. And in all of this, physically attending a church, as we're doing this morning, is important. Closing churches during COVID sent the message that collective worship isn't essential. And if it didn't matter then, why should it matter now? And post-COVID, there are still churches that only or largely gather on the internet. We, of course, have this live stream and people do watch for various reasons and good reasons. But live streaming may save you the bother of leaving your home and yet in theory still be a part of a Christian community. Nonetheless, it has without the hassle of being in the same room as everyone else. And why go and listen to a preacher who you can't switch off if he or she is boring? But the New Testament word for church is ecclesia, which means an assembly. Jesus promised that when two or three gather together in his name, he will be there amongst them. True worship is more than just hearing and seeing others on a screen. You can't baptize a baby or share in bread and wine of communion over the internet. Church is a community, a place where, as I've often said, people know each other by name and miss them when they're not there. Jesus operated by being out and about with people. He walked miles to where they were. He told them stories about sowing seeds and vineyards. And from them they learnt of love and being a good neighbour and the kingdom of God. He accepted invitations to meals and struck up conversations with people whilst he was out and about. A woman drawing water from a well, fishermen on the lakeside, tax collectors. Conversations which led to transformed lives and saved souls. So having been adopted in Jesus' family, we need to gather here in church together to spend time with each other look into one another's faces, sing together, bow heads together, shake one another's hands, exchange a hug or two, share bread and wine together, share our joys, a new child, success at school, an engagement or a forthcoming wedding. Sunday by Sunday we renew our sense of community as we study the word and pray together, thanking God for our blessings and then we too go out into the world to transform lives and save souls. So what does all that look like for you? How can you find more joy in your life? Should you be coming here more regularly? Or should you be meeting in a life group where you can get to know people better, share life's up and downs and be encouraged? Could you contribute more to the life of our church community, finding joy in spending time with others who need our support? Throughout the Old and New Testaments, joy is being in community with others. 
and it doesn't depend on the ebb and flow of earth, earthly happiness. Happiness is important, and there are times when it's fine, but generally speaking, it's a solo business, and it waxes and wanes when life's troubles hit. Joy derives from love, love of one another, and love of God. And there is much goodness to rejoice in the world around us. Just watch the repair shop rather than the news. And if nothing else, seek out the company of people who bring joy when they arrive, rather than those who drain it away when they walk into the room. I was with my oldest mate a couple of weeks ago, someone I'd been with at the academy at Sandhurst well over 50 years ago. We got cold and wet, tired and hungry together then, and we were able to laugh about it, and we've encouraged and experienced each other great celebrations of joy and laughter over the years since. Who brings joy into your life? And there are many people here, not, not least Sharon, who shared with us earlier, who carry joy with them. In so many ways, the world today is just as it's always been, fallen and sinful. And the case for despair today is no different to the case for it when the Israelites were living under Roman occupation in Jesus' time, or when they were living through tough times in the Old Testaments. Old Testament. But we need to look through all of that. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 tells us to rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, even when those circumstances seem bleak. We need to let the light in. Amongst all the trials and tribulations that they faced, the disciples were continually filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Which is why Paul prays, Now may the God of hope fill you all with joy and peace as you trust in him. And he declares that if we're led by the Spirit, live by the Spirit, and walk by the Spirit, then the Spirit will grow the fruit of joy in our lives. So let's get out there and allow that to happen. Amen.